welcome. You're listening to a sermon podcast from Oak Hills Church in Folsom, California. Um, about six years ago, God was gently but firmly pulling back the curtain to areas in my life that needed further healing, and at the same time awakening some new longings, some of these things Mike talked about. A few things were surfacing. First, though I claimed to have stepped into my identity as God's beloved and enthusiastically proclaims God's love to others, I still often felt like a fraud, unworthy of that love. And any kind of failure, no matter how small, would sink me into despair. At the end of a particularly hard struggle where I stood face to face with how little I really lived out my truest identity, I was tasked with completing the sentence, when I think about the future I would love to concentrate more on, I wrote, realizing more completely my identity in Christ and helping others do the same. Yet another thing became clear to me as I stumbled in this area of identity over the next years. I could only go so far in recovering my truest identity without running into a wall because I not only needed healing in the area of self, I needed healing in my image or picture of God. I could not fully step into my beloved status if I couldn't trust that God was good, thoroughly good, that God was truly and completely love. As long as my image of God held on a little bit to a disappointed parent, a taskmaster I could never truly please, or an all-powerful but sometimes finicky being who gives good gifts one day and randomly pulls out the rug another, I could not fully abide. I needed healing of my distorted pictures of God that kept me stuck. And my guess is some of you, if the veil was pulled back, would find the same to be true. So today... As we walk further down the path of spiritual formation, where next week we'll concentrate on what is my picture of myself, we'll first consider the all-important question of what is my picture of God. So will you stand for the reading of today's scripture? It is Psalm 103, and it is on pages 598 and 599. Praise the Lord, my soul. All my inmost being, praise his holy name. Praise the Lord, my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your sins and heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit and crowns you with love and compassion, who satisfies your desires with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord looks righteousness and justice for all the oppressed, He made known his ways to Moses, his deeds to the people of Israel. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. He will not always accuse, nor will he harbor his anger forever. 
He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far he has removed our transgressions from us. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he remembers how we are formed. He remembers that we are dust. The life of mortals is like grass. They flourish like the flower of the field. The wind blows over it and it's gone. And its place remembers it no more. But from everlasting to everlasting, the Lord's love is with those who fear him and his righteousness with their children's children, with those who keep his covenant and remember to obey his precepts. The Lord has established his throne in heaven and his kingdom rules over all. Praise the Lord, you his angels, you mighty ones who do his bidding, who obey his words. Praise the Lord, all you heavenly hosts, you, his servants who do his will, praise the Lord all his works everywhere in his dominion. Praise the Lord, my soul. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. The psalmist paints a beautiful and robust picture of God here. If we were at a workshop or a retreat, I would ask you to speak out names of God based on this psalm or attributes of God highlighted that enhance this amazing picture. You'd probably start with a God worthy of all our praise, an amazing God indeed. Some of you would use words for God based on this passage like Savior. He forgives all our sins, healer, and heals all our diseases. Sustainer and strengthener satisfies your desire for good things that your youth is renewed like an eagle's. King, the Lord has established his throne in heaven and his kingdom rules over all. And phrase by phrase, we could continue with attributes like just, righteous, compassionate, forgiving, and above all, love. And then if I asked you if this matches your picture of God, I suspect most would say, of course, But what happens if I ask you if the way you respond in times of stress or pain or loss support what you have claimed to be your picture of God? When life goes wrong, do you ever wonder if God is punishing you? Do you truly feel that God is always for you or sometimes a bit against you? What does your prayer life suggest about your true picture of God? How about your level of anxiety, your relationships, how you feel about yourself? A.W. Tozer wrote, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. The portentous fact about any man or woman is not what he at a given time says or do but what he in his deep heart conceives God to be like. Most important thing about us. That's pretty strong language. 
The truth is we can think we know a lot about God and his word, give all the right answers, and yet, because our stated belief does not match our long-term persistent experience of God, we will live out a completely different picture of God than the one we say we believe. Whether we're aware of it or not, we all have a picture of God. In fact, there are two facets we all have to our representation of God. The first is our God concept, or you might call this our professed images. Your God concept is conscious and left brain. It's linear, a logical representation. This will get you an A on the theology exam. All the right answers. But you also have a God image or default images. These are implicit, subconscious, experiential. Our God images are not abstract ideas. They are pictures, and they are powerful. They are combined with thoughts and feelings and are loaded with emotion. And when image conflicts with concept, image wins every time. And this is the tricky part. We usually begin to sign these images and pictures as young children before we think in words and ideas. And then we look to life experience to strengthen these pictures, making them even stronger. From a study by a neuroscientist and researcher called How God Changes the Brain, young children do not have cognitive skills to articulate the abstract concepts of God, but they can use their visual imaginations to comprehend the spiritual realms. Even in the adult brain, ideas appear to be associated with internal visual processes. In fact, if you cannot hear, if you cannot see, hear, touch, taste, or smell something, the brain's first impulse is to assume it doesn't exist. Thus, for anyone, the brain's first response is to assign an image to the concept of God. And interestingly enough, This isn't only people who grew up in a religious household. Even atheists have a picture of God they don't believe in. We may not be conscious of these images, yet they powerfully impact our behaviors. They profoundly impact our spiritual well-being. They are part of our spiritual formation for good or bad. These images are intertwined with our images of ourselves. A counselor who specializes in this area wrote, for every distortion a person has about God, there is a corresponding self-distortion. And these pictures affect the way we relate to others. If our God easily finds fault, then there's a good chance we will be quick to point out faults in others. If our God is sort of a black and white, right and wrong, in and out character, then we will most likely be judgmental of those who don't think exactly as we do, fearful of what they represent, and ready to fight to protect our stated beliefs. We really do become like the God we worship. Since these images begin in early childhood, it's probably no surprise that our families 
play a huge role in their development? Was your family shame-based or grace-based or somewhere in between? This is going to make a difference in how you relate to God. Was it performance-oriented, where love was given and withheld depending on how you performed? Was there addiction, codependency, abuse? Did you need to compete for attention? And I can't go too far into this without mentioning fathers. Now, both parents are hugely important. And depending on your relationship or lack of it with either parent, surely this had an impact on your picture of God. But both in my life, and I suspect for many here, there is a certain amount of fusion between our image of God and our earthly father. We frequently use the word father when talking about or talking to God. The prayer Jesus taught us to pray begins with our Father. The scripture we just read compares God to a father. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. Cool, right? But what happens when the father or mother you grew up with is not filled with compassion or a conditional compassion? that is easily withdrawn. Is that what God's compassion is like? And then there's the qualifier. So the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. I know a little about the fear of a father. And it doesn't exactly draw me closer to God. When Tozer, who I quoted earlier, talked about this very passage he wrote, he remembers our frame and knows that we are dust. He may sometimes chasten us, it is true, but even this he does with a smile, the proud, tender smile of a father who is bursting with pleasure over an imperfect but promising child who is coming every day to look more and more like the one whose child he is. Is that your experience of father? Another major factor for some of these distorted pictures of God is religion, the church, even scripture. Nicole talked about that. This one is usually connected to family because we are often drawn to religious systems that match our private images. We also often seek God when we are most vulnerable either young or in times of crisis, and how the church responds, what they teach and value, we, without even being aware, can connect to God. And this either reinforces those distorted pictures or creates new ones. <coughs> the gospel message is good news. But for me growing up, it was a source of shame and judgment and fear. So much fear. Though God's love was supposedly unconditional, it felt tied to performance, and I was always coming up short. Scripture, read through the lens of fear and shame or judgment, can add to both our feelings of worthlessness and our desire to hide from this God who wields judgment liberally. 
And what about some of those Old Testament stories? A flood that wipes out the world except one little family and the lucky two animals of each species? Sodom and Gomorrah. Even Abraham being told to sacrifice his son? We haven't even gotten out of Genesis yet. Can you see how scripture read through the lens of fear or judgment or shame can play out in anything but healthy images of God? William Temple said, if we have a negative picture of God, the more religious we become, the worse it gets. That's scary. Other factors also influence our pictures. A Western mindset where knowledge is everything, where intellect is valued over emotions and feelings. Our self-sufficient, strong, power matters most world. Our high value on personal freedom. Is that who God is? And what about our personal psyche, our temperaments, our unique personalities? Add all this to our life circumstances, less than ideal relationships, tragedies that seem to come from nowhere without reason, traumas we carry deep down in our souls. We live in a world, it's evident now, filled with war and suffering and betrayal and divorce and pain and sickness and death. What kind of God allows this? And what about unanswered prayer? Are you glad you came yet? <laughs> we all have deeply embedded pictures of God. And beginning to recognize some of our distorted default images is the first step in healing and discovering a truer picture of who God is. You see, when we begin to recognize our distorted default images that keep us from knowing God more completely, things can begin to change. As we invite God to open our eyes and ears and minds and hearts and to the best of our abilities stay in the mess, the spirit can begin a beautiful work of healing and restoration. But it takes some work, some digging. We did a retreat around this area last October. And there we explored some of the more common distorted images. We don't have time this morning to go too far into these, but let me mention some pictures that this passage particularly sheds light on. First, the God of impossible expectations. David Siemens, in his book, Healing Damage Emotions, compares this God to a ladder. We climb rung after rung, but each time we think we're near the top, we find that it's moved up several more rungs. This is opposite of the God of Psalm 103, who knows how we are formed. He remembers that we are dust. Another distortion is the restrained, distant God. This God is logical and perhaps strong, but rarely tender. This is the not the God who redeems your life from the pit and crowns you with love and compassion. Because this God wouldn't care all that much if you were even in the pit. And if he did, he would shake his head and tell you to toughen up. Perhaps you may discover a bit of a bully God who is harsh, 
punitive, unpredictable. Instead of a God who does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Maybe you live out of an unreliable God and you never know when that rug might be pulled out. Quite removed from the God of Psalm 103, 17. From everlasting to everlasting, the Lord's love is on those who fear him and his righteousness with their children's children. Some will find pictures of a God who abandons, a God who withholds as opposed to one who satisfies your desire for good things. What about a weak, passive God, a benevolent grandfather, nice to have around but not that essential to your everyday life? This is far from the God who works righteousness and justice for all the oppressed. And I fear if many of us are honest, we will also find a picture of a mere image God who looks a lot like us. A comfortable God who likes the things we like, has the same theology and opinions and politics as we do, and is disgusted with what disgusts us not the God of Psalm 103, who in, the verse, in verse 19 has established his throne in heaven and his kingdom rules over all. Many of us hold pictures of God that are too high and out of reach and impossible to know. But others of us, perhaps in response to the, dis, the discomfort of coming face to face with a God we don't like, have created a God made in our image instead of recognizing we are made in his. I firmly believe on learning, uprooting these default pictures is our first step in learning to embrace a robust, healthy picture of God. But we can't stop with unraveling because, because God wants so much more for us. He invites us to know him intimately. So let's end with some truths we can lean into. Let's talk about how we can slowly replace default images with truth about God. First, let's recognize that God is boundless mystery. Psalm 103 points to this, doesn't it? This is a God beyond our thoughts. Isaiah 55, 8 tells us, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. We should know from the start that if we ever think we have God completely figured out, then we are wrong. We are often uncomfortable in the presence of mystery. We want to figure things out with tidy, safe answers we can control and manage. But God, in Narnian language, is not a tame God. And yet, he is always good. Many of you are going through the Renovari course with this series, and I love how they say this. God is always greater and better than we can ever imagine. God always transcends our theologies, doctrines, denominations, and languages 
I was trying to teach um, one of my granddaughters the Lord's Prayer. And I wanted to not just have her learn to recite it, but learn about God through it. So we started our Father in Heaven. I told her the word Father was similar to our word for Daddy, but one of respect. And then I asked, what do you think heaven means? And she points up. And I responded that, yes, heaven was the place where God dwells. But it also, in scripture, means the sky and even the air around us. So I said, isn't it cool that God loves you like a perfect daddy and is as close as the air you breathe? Then I continued with, hallowed or holy is your name. And I explained that holy means set apart above all else. So I said, our God is like a loving daddy, as close as the air we breathe, yet above all things. To which she responded, ah, uh, I don't get it. <laughs> and the truth is, I don't get it either. And no matter how close I get to God, I never truly will. Because any true picture of God will always leave room for mystery. And the longer I'm on this journey, the less that actually bothers me. In fact, I've come to find comfort in it because God is God and I am not. And trying to be God is exhausting. The Trinity is one of those beautiful truths about God we can embrace but will never fully understand a beautiful holy mystery. A common distortion is to see the Father as stern and difficult to approach, approach, holy and wholly removed. The Son, Jesus, as understanding and compassionate, we like him, and the Holy Spirit as a friendly ghost. But that's not a God's, that's our image, not God's. The beauty of the Trinity is that God is relational and always has been. One book I read called the Trinity a family of love, a community of love, and we are invited right into the midst of this community of love. We are baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Not a mystery to be solved, but a mystery to be worshipped. <coughs> a mystery of love. Scripture is where God paints beautiful pictures of himself and can be instrumental in healing our default images. God knows how our brains work and so often speaks in metaphors and images. Good shepherd, eternal king, vine, father and mother, rock, living water, hiding place, light, and many more. It's good for us to camp in passages like Psalm 103. We could spend years in Psalm 23 and Psalm 139. What about the prayer Jesus taught us? But I feel like I have to mention under this point of boundless mystery that even as we grow in a truer picture of God through Scripture, there will be Scripture that confuses us. Stories that seem to, to um, reinforce distorted images. Pictures of God that seem harsh or judgmental. And that is why I mentioned scripture, our greatest source of truth, here. All scripture is God-breathed, but it's important to enter all scripture prayerfully, recognizing the time and the culture and interpretation and even the freedom God gave the various authors who he spoke through. 
It's important to remember how we sometimes also read our own distortions into scripture. And it's important sometimes to recognize that I don't get it is a reasonable response because God is boundless mystery. Which brings me to my next point in replacing default images with true pictures of God. God is Christ-like. The bottom line in the Christian faith is the earth-shattering claim that God stepped into human history in the person of Jesus. God's character is revealed in Jesus and all should be seen through the lens of Jesus. First Corinthians, uh, excuse me, Colossians 1 tells us that he is the image of the invisible God. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. To really know God, you must get to know Jesus. Spend time in the Gospels. Live in them with the constant prayer, God, show me yourself. Trevor Hudson, when writing about this, said, the boundless mystery is not something vague and woolly, but someone personal. God is Christ-like, and in him is no unchristlikeness at all. So every idea and assumption and picture we hold must be measured against the person of Jesus. There's so much more I could say here. Our picture of God should be continually growing and changing. Our pictures of God shouldn't be static, but will grow and develop as we know him more. And that is good, so very good, because God is greater and better and closer than we can ever imagine. Which brings me to the last point I want to make. And if you remember nothing else from today, please land here. Above all, God is love. That's the truest picture painted in Psalm 103 and throughout scripture. That's the picture of a father who so loved the world that he would send his son not to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. That's a picture of a son who willingly, lovingly leaves the throne of glory for a human body and becomes one of us, God with us. That's a picture of the spirit that would indwell us and be our guide, our comforter, our source of strength and life. That's love that calls us to be one as he is one. Love is not just an attribute of God. Love is God. Will you pray with me? Father, Son, and Spirit, community of love who invites us smack into the midst of love, boundless mystery beyond our wildest imaginations, we confess that we hold pictures of you that are not you at all. Reveal in your grace where we are living out of default, distorted images. Gently pull back the veil and help us to see you more clearly through your word. Give us experiences of you that settle into our souls and transform head truth into heartfelt love. May we know you more each and every day we pray. Amen. Amen.